been invited in. And when you invite somebody, you are changing not just that person, but entire family trees. And so it was, it was so cool to see it. So I just want to say thank you to that. For those of you who are maybe joining us for the first time, we are in week two of a series we started last week called The Table. And over and over again in Scripture, what we see is that the table is a picture for how you and I are to commune with God and to commune with one another. So it's not a surprise then that we see in Scripture and in church history, the early church, that the church would be connected to this idea of a table. And that even makes sense in our context because church is a place where we come to get fed. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And the gospel is understood in the context of an invitation to a meal. That's the gospel message, is that you have been invited to a seat at the table. Well, we looked at this in a number of different ways. That invitation I'm going to talk about in a couple weeks, because that invitation part is important. But what you need to know for today when we talk about being invited to the table is that we are getting ready to invite the whole city in just a few short weeks to one of our three Easter services. We're going to be doing three Easter services. Can you put your hands together for that? I'll tell you why that's exciting. Because what it means is more opportunities for people to know Jesus. And we believe God is going to change some lives. We're doing an 8.30 service, a 10 a.m. service, and an 11.30 service. And so why that matters is we know that our 10 a.m. is going to be the most packed. And so I would just ask if you could, if this is your church home, to make plans to come to the 8.30 service. And let's be honest, I'm talking to the 11 o'clock, so you're probably going to be at the 11.30. Um, like I would take an extra hour. But uh, I just want to encourage you to begin to invite people in your life and let them know about it. And we're also doing a Good Friday service. That's going to be different than our Easter services, but a special Good Friday service, and that's going to be at 7. And of course, I want to invite you to come be a part of that. But we're talking about tables, and where we're going to look today is a different table. Last week, we talked about the communion table. Today, I want to talk about a different table that Jesus sat at, and this is found in Luke chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there with me. I'm going to read from this Velocity Bible here. And in Luke chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 36. This is what it says. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went up to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the, Pharisees, the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him. What kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. Well, Jesus, he, he knew what this Pharisee was thinking. So he answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people, he goes into a parable, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. 
neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came to your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. I want to use this scandalous story today, and I'll talk to you in a little bit about why it's so scandalous. I want to use this scandalous story to talk to you about table settings. Table settings. You guys know what a table setting is? The front row does. The rest of you are just looking silently in judgment. Growing up, I, uh, first chore I remember was to set the table. As a kid, I was uh, too young to really, you know, participate in the making of the meal. And I don't think my mom trusted me to get the dishes clean if I washed the dishes. So my job, among many things, was to set the table. Truthfully, in 20 years of marriage, it's still my job to set the table. Because my wife doesn't trust me to make the meal or to do the dishes. So uh, how many of you know, though, um, there's a proper way to set the table? Oliver, I'm going to have you come help me with this. There's a proper way to set the table. You guys know that? There's a right way and a wrong way. Um, you got the glass. You know which side the glass goes on? Glass goes on the, the right side. Just checking your, your etiquette, if you've had etiquette classes. Um, you know, there's, there's napkins. They go on the table. Did you know? Go ahead and set it up for me. Uh, there's a glass there. Set that placemat. Um, do you know which side the napkin goes on? Is there a right side or a wrong side for the napkin? There's a, there, there's a, there, there is a right side. It goes on the, the left. It goes on the left side is where that goes. Sorry to, if I'm messing up your table setting plans. I'll tell you the truth. Marissa and I used to get in fights over this when we got married, about the right way and the wrong way to set the table. I won't tell you who was wrong, Marissa, but um, <laughs> I will let you know. Uh, that, the, that this used to be an argument. Then, of course, you got your silverware. Fork goes on the left side. Okay, left side. Fork goes on the left side. Some of you, okay, we're, we're going to have charm school after this. Um, then you've got a, a, a knife, right? Knife goes on the right, right side. Yeah. And uh, which the blade is supposed to face a certain way, right? It's supposed to face the, the plate course, place not set. You got, the, you got the spoon, which goes next to the knife, yep, okay, and then of course the, the centerpiece of, of every setting is, is the plate. This is the way you set the table. There's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. I learned really early on that the setting is important because in, in many ways the, the table setting is what allows you to serve the meal. Like, you can't serve food at a table that hasn't been set. 
it, it's the mechanism, it's the method for the meal. In many ways, as church, every week we get to set the table. We have a team of people who serve, a team of people who pray, a team of people who prepare, a, a team of people who practice. We've got staff that are overseeing the operations of things, and every week we get to set the table so that on Sunday we can come and we can receive a meal from God's presence. Well, it's interesting. It was this thought, the table setting, that I connected to Jesus' ministry because many of us were familiar with the mission of Jesus. We know that Jesus came to redeem mankind. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That was his mission. But when you think about his method, are you all done? All right, can you give it up for Oliver? Did a good job. This may be, this might be the first time he's ever set the table. When you think about his mission, we know that it was to redeem mankind, seek and save the lost. But when you think about his method, okay, we, we know that he had miracles. We know that there were multitudes. We know he had a message to proclaim. But the way he got that message out was often around a table. See, here's what I learned is that Jesus did ministry in table settings. Table settings. In fact, Luke's gospel that we are looking at, Jesus is at a table in Luke's gospel more than any other gospel. Now, this makes sense because Luke was a physician. Luke wrote with a very uh, intentional purpose to illustrate the humanity of Jesus. Makes sense. You know the different gospel writers, they, they had different intentions, perspectives, purposes behind their books. Like Matthew, Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience. Matthew wanted to present Jesus as the promised Messiah. Mark, he presented Jesus as a suffering servant. Luke, the son of man. John, the son of God. John wanted to demonstrate the divinity of Jesus. That's why he wrote about so many different miracles. Luke, the humanity of Jesus. Not as many miracles as John. He writes about miracles, but when he writes about miracles, he, he goes into way too much detail. Because like Luke, you know, he'll be like, well, most gospels like this woman was sick and Jesus healed him. Luke's like, well, it was a woman and she had this internal bleeding of 12 years, and she suffered a lot of things from a lot of different physicians, and she didn't get better. She got worse, and then one day she saw Jesus, and she went up, and she touched his robe, and in that moment, the bleeding stopped, and it's like, look, I didn't need all that detail, okay? Way too much detail. Sometimes it's kind of gross, but, but Luke wrote to portray the humanity of Jesus. He was writing to a primarily Gentile audience, Greek audience. He wanted people to know Jesus as the perfect man. And so with that in mind, he, he, more than any other gospel writer, has Jesus at a table. And it's fascinating. Really, if you read through the gospels, what you'll see in the gospel of Luke, the gospel of Luke specifically, you'll see that Jesus is either on his way to a table, reclining at a table, or coming from a table in almost every instance in the Gospel of Luke. So when we 
read this setting in Luke chapter 7, it's no wonder that we see Jesus was often referred to as a glutton and a drunkard. Maybe that's not the image you had of Jesus. <laughs> People criticized Jesus because he was at a table so much. I mean, think about this. A glutton? How many tables do you have to be at for people to start referring to you as a glutton? A drunkard? I mean, some of you maybe know some people that drink a little too much, but I don't think most of us are like this person, you know, a little too much. We don't usually do that. But Jesus, he spent so much time at tables that they said this about, in fact, Luke sets up this story this way. I think it's in verse 34, Luke 7 says, 33, says, For John the Baptist, quoting Jesus here, came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. But the Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's what they said about Jesus. What I like about Luke's gospel, though, is it lets us know that Jesus did not just eat with tax collectors. He did not just eat with sinners. He did not just eat with prostitutes. Now, see, Jesus was different. And we learn this in the story. We see that Jesus ate with Pharisees. He ate with all different kinds of people. Because that was the context of his ministry. He had something he wanted to share, message he wants to get you. He's going to get it out in the context of a table. And it's this idea, which leads me to the first thing I want to tell you, because when we think about the table, if the church is a table, what is it that's at the table of the church? The first thing you need to know is that there's a ministry at the table. What do I mean by ministry? Well, we see it right in this text is that Jesus connects with lots of different kinds of people. In this particular passage, there's two people at the table that could not be more different. And the reason this is important to me is because I meet people all the time that be like, uh, I don't know, I'm not really a church person. And here's what they mean by that. It's like, I, I know me, like, you know, church is for a certain kind of person, people that are close to God, I know my life, and I'm not really a church person. And in this story we hear about Jesus, we see one person, would have been a church person, a person who was really close to God, considered close to God, this Pharisee. You have another person at a table, though, who would have been considered far from God, Th this woman, a uh, sinner. You know, there's different seats at a table. I learned this early on. Do you guys, do you have like a specific seat you sit at at the table? Sure, like my seat is the couch. That's, that's where I sit. No. There's different seats. I'm not talking like seats in here. Like some of you are like, I have my seat. No. I'm not talking about in here. Like some of you need to move your seats around, get a little too comfortable. You need to sit on the other side. If you're in the back and sit towards the front, just mix it up a little bit. But there's different seats at the table. Like in my house, I just sit at the head of the table and Marissa sits to my right 
We have other kids. They're kind of spread around. Reese sits across from me. Other kids here. We, we've got a specific seat where we sit. And at the table, which we're calling the church, there's different seats. Jesus, of course, is the head of the church. So Jesus is going to be at the head of the table. But at this seat, this seat is really important because this seat, the first one I want to talk about, this is the seat for people that are far from God. And in every healthy church, there needs to be a seat at the table for people who are far from God. See, church is not just supposed to be a holy huddle. It is a gathering of the saints, yes, absolutely. It is an opportunity for those who have claimed Christ and followed Christ to come and worship. But there always needs to be a seat for those who are far from God. We see that with this woman. This woman called a woman, a sinful woman of the city. That's a euphemism. Euphemism for a prostitute. This person would not have really been considered close. We see her at the table with Jesus. The reason there's always got to be this seat is because, well, you know, we end our service every, every week with a prayer. We give people an opportunity to accept Jesus. Those people who are far from God, who don't know him yet, we say, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that God sent his son to die on the cross for sins, that's how you're saved. It's not magic words, it's faith-filled words. So we lead you in a prayer. Well, that prayer actually comes from the book of Romans. Romans, it's funny, it's written by the Apostle Paul. He actually wrote this book all because there was division about the table. He gets to it in Romans 14. We're going to go through the book of Romans this summer, go through the whole book. But in, in Romans... Paul's writing, and he says that prayer that we pray in Romans 10, uh, 8, 9, or 10. He says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because he says, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. But what's interesting, so that's where that comes from. If you read on just a few verses, look at what Paul says. He says, how then can they call on one in whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear someone without someone preaching to them? In, in other words, there's always got to be a seat for people who are far from God if we want people to believe how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless they're in a place where the gospel is being preached? There's always got to be a seat at the table. And so at our church, we understand every week there are people who are sitting in this seat. And here's what I want to say. If you're here today and this is the seat that you're in, you're not a Christ follower yet. You're far from God. You're kind of checking this out. Here's what I would ask of you. Just keep coming back. Just keep coming back. Because if you will keep coming back, here's what I can promise you. God is going to speak to you. He is going to reveal himself to you. And when that moment, when you pray that prayer, in an instant, your life 
will be changed from the inside out. And what happens, once you believe, this is a chair, chair where you believe, you move to this chair. This is the second chair. This chair is for new believers. This is the chair where you believe. This is the chair where you are a new believer. Scripture says when you're a new believer that you are born again. Have you ever heard that phrase before, born again? I like that because in my mind, what that tells me is, you know, it's when we're born again, we're born into the family of God. So one way you can think about it, like if this is the chair where you believe, this is the chair where you belong. Because we talk about at our church, we want you to believe in Jesus, belong in the community, become what God's called you to be. Well, you really can't belong until you believe. I know that sounds kind of harsh. I want to explain it to you because until you believe, you're not born again. It's once you're born again, you're born into the family of God. Until you believe where you belong is hell. Now, there are a lot of things you can be before you believe. You can be cared for. You can be served. You can be known. You can be loved. You can be helped. There's a lot of things you can be. But it's after you believe that you belong in God's family. When my kids were born... They didn't have to try to belong. They just automatically, they're Jenkins. In fact, there was nothing about their behavior that made them belong. Yet, they did not fit into my life very well. But because they were born into my family, they belong. But the truth is, Reese, I'm going to need you to grab that for me. If, if we're saying that you're born again, when you're born, what are you? You are a baby. And baby's not an insult. It's just a reality of what you are. We love babies at this church. We're doing baby dedications, child dedications next week. But the truth is, if, if you're a baby when you're born, you don't sit in this chair, even though I said you sit in this chair. You sit in a different chair. You sit in a chair like this. And the reason I needed Reese to bring out this chair, and Reese, I'm just going to have you hang out with me for a little bit. You can take a seat at the table. The reason I needed him to bring out this chair is because it illustrates my next point, is that I said there's a ministry at the table, different kinds of people, but you also need to know there's a mess at the table. There's a mess at the table. Ministry is messy. Church is messy. If you came in here thinking that everything is going to be perfect, everybody just has good attitudes all the time, you know, nothing goes wrong, and everybody just treats you right, you're going to be sorely mistaken. Why? Ministry is messy. Church is messy. Because there's babies. Yeah. Babies are messy. Babies, you know, it's all about them. And that's okay. We love new believers. Every church should have people far from God. Every church should have new believers. We love new believers. But, you know, new believers, they make some messes sometimes. Like it's... They don't like something, they just throw their food on the table. It's funny because they have to be trained. And uh, my youngest son, Grant, you know, we talk about setting the table. Sometimes I feel like we should just set his place on the floor. Because 
that is where <laughs> the food ends up most of the time. I kid you not, like, I will, I've seen him eat, and I try and correct him. I've seen him, this is how he, he eats. He's like, I'm like, Grant, you got to take the knife, train, you got to put it on the floor, you got to put the fork to your mouth. But he's, he's messy. And uh, we call him Taz sometimes. Looks like Tasmanian devil after he's eaten. I used to be so embarrassed when uh, we would go out to eat with our kids, we would leave a big tip because, like, I feel bad for whoever has to clean up after that. I'm sorry. We're just going to try and hide and go out. Like, <laughs> please don't know us. Um, but it's messy. Ministry's messy. In this story, it's messy. I don't know if you know this. We talked about this woman, sinful woman of the city, euphemism for a prostitute. She, she comes in, and you got to picture the scene because they're at a table and, of course, it wouldn't have been a table like this. The table was lower to the ground. Everybody reclined at the table. They were on one side. Their feet were out. It was more an open environment so people would come around. They could listen into the conversation. This woman standing behind Jesus, obviously she was touched. She was moved. She knew of him. Something's happening to be in his presence. She begins to cry. Tears start hitting his feet. Kind of awkward. Sobbing uncontrollably. I'm sure she was embarrassed. She gets down, doesn't have anything with which she can dry it up. So she undoes her hair. That would have been scandalous. Starts drying it off with her hair. Overcome with emotion, she begins to kiss his feet. And then it talks about this alabaster jar of perfume. Back in this day, you keep in mind, they did not have the same kind of hygiene we have today. So you know, it was hot, arid climate. People smelled. It wasn't deodorant. So if somebody wanted to smell good, particularly someone in her field who everything is about attraction, you want to draw people in, what they would do, they would have this jar of perfume they'd wear around the neck. It would have this very fragrant oil in it. But it was, it was sealed in such a way that the oil wouldn't spill out, but it had holes at the top to let out the aroma. Well, you'd see another example of something similar to this in John. If you wanted to get the oil out, the only way was to break the jar. So this scene where she's sobbing, crying, kissing, hair, breaks this jar. You've got shards of alabaster and oil all over the place. Jesus is just chilling. He's good with it. He was good with the awkward. He was good with the mess. You know what, so are we. I, I don't expect, well, I'll tell you this, I don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. I don't expect that. I don't expect immature people to act mature. We're good with the mess. We're good with the awkward. It's probably awkward for Reese being up here right now because he's more of a behind-the-scenes guy, just kind of sitting here, chilling. But you know what happens lots of times? It's okay. I don't expect you to be mature when you're not yet mature. But you know what's inappropriate? I've got Reese, who's 16. I'm not going to make him sit in this chair because it's not ours. We're well past our baby days. But can you imagine? Just kind of, don't break it. Just, you know, kind of like, just, just easy. You just, just hold that. Just You know, I meet a lot of Christians like this, though. 
Like, they should be well past this stage. And they're still contributing to the mess because they made it all about me. Me and what I want. Feed me. Do this for me and clean up after me. And I'm just going to stay here because this is where I'm comfortable. But God doesn't want you to stay in this seat. All right, give it up for Reese. I'm impressed. So, God wants you to move from this chair to this chair. But you don't get into this chair without receiving the message. That's the other thing I got to tell you. There's a ministry at the table. There's a mess at the table. There's a message at the table. There's a message. The writer of Hebrews talks about this specifically in Hebrews 5. Can you put that on the screen for me? He says, we have much to say to you about this, but it's hard to make it clear because you no longer try to understand. What's he say? He says, in fact, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You, you should be sitting at this table, this seat. But you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk. It's your baby, not solid food. And anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. What's it go on to say? But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So you want to move from this seat to this seat. There's a message that you got to receive. I want to give Simon the Pharisee some credit because he received the message. Because Jesus, he goes to him and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, tell me. Tell me, teacher. I want to know what you have to say. I invited you to my house. I invited you to my table. If you've got something for me, I want to receive it. So Jesus goes into this little parable, teaches him, and he says, which one loves more? Simon says, the one who was forgiven more. He says, you got it right. You got the message. You hear what I'm trying to tell you. More. That's, that's the part that was interesting. Then he talks about this woman, the more that she did. She was, let's be honest, she was a little extra. And what we often miss is that to go from here to here, it's going to require something extra. It's going to require something more. There was nothing wrong with what Simon the Pharisee did. He, he was not doing anything. He invited Jesus. He gave him the customary things. But he didn't do the extra. He didn't do the more. And if you... If you want to move from this seat to this seat, it's going to require more. It's going to require more. Can't be sleeping with your girlfriend, with your boyfriend, if you want to move to this seat, the mature seat, where you are becoming everything God has called you to be, where you're becoming who God has called you to be. You're not going to get to this seat if you got a stranglehold 
on your money. Where you have yet to trust God with your first and your best. You're not going to get to this seat. You're not going to get to this seat if church to you is just sitting at the chair, taking in the message, but you've never moved beyond to serve. This seat requires more. This seat is where you become who God's called you to be. This is the seat of maturity. And I want to encourage you, don't miss out on the more, because the more is where there's a miracle. The more is where there's a miracle. See, there's a miracle at the table. Yes, I know this, this woman was a little extra. Yes, I know what she did maybe even, even seemed extreme. But I noticed something happened for her. Didn't happen to a lot of other people. I want to read it to you. It's in the last two chapters. The last two verses of that chapter. Because Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. That's pretty good. She was a sinful woman. He forgave her. But look at the last two. It says, the other guests, they begin to say among themselves, who is this? Who is this? Who even forgives sins? So Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She didn't just get forgiven the word used is sozo your faith has saved you sozo that's the same word where we talk about salvation salvation of course includes forgiveness but there's so much more than that salvation includes wholeness includes deliverance peace blessing saved There's a miracle. I don't know what miracle she needed. Freedom. But I wonder if maybe for her, the miracle was a fresh start. That she didn't just have to be forgiven of her sin, but she didn't have to go back to her life of sin. Completely set free. That's why I want to tell you, don't. Don't neglect the more because there's a miracle in the more. And when you move to the seat of maturity where you can become who God's called you to be, God has a miracle for you. Every time we come into this place, there's a miracle that's available at the table. Miracle to be set free from your past. Miracle to be forgiven, to have a future, to have a hope, a fresh 